We write a prescription, never thinking where the idea for the medication came from in the first place, or how that pharmaceutical made the journey to the retail market. But today, we're going to find out. You're listening to Reach MDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with us today is Katie McFarlane, President and CEO of Zintria Pharmaceutical Corporation. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. All right. So a drug gets a new drug application number. How much does it cost to this point for the pharmaceutical company? About um, to get to, and, and we're talking about the IND. At this the point, IND. I'm sorry. Right. Drug. That's IND. okay. To get to the point where you first go into man, it usually can take anywhere from you know initial discovery of of the drug through that process about four to four and a half years. And by that time, you know, the spend isn't as high as the clinical portion. You may have only spent, say, $50 million up to that point, all told, depending on how complex of a, a drug it is. And it can be actually quite low at that point. You could spend as little as, as 10 or $15 million. Well, let's make a point about that here because, you know, there are many of my colleagues who run around um, – thinking that pharma is the enemy and that's big money and the research dollars are overblown. But answer a question for me. The generic companies aren't spending $50 million to bring new drugs to market, are they? Oh, goodness, no. I mean, you know, a generic development program is an entirely different animal. Um, to get a generic approved, and, and what I'm talking about now would be an AB-rated generic. So that's a generic that has met the requirement so that when a patient takes that prescription to the pharmacy, the pharmacist can, pharmacist can substitute the drug without having to call you as a doctor. And to get that rating, basically they have to do two things. They have to prove to the FDA that they have a, a manufacturing process for the drug that produces a repeatable formulation. Um, and that just means that, you know, from batch to batch, they can show and demonstrate that it's a reliable um, product and what they say in, is in there is in there. The second thing they have to do is perform a, what's called a bioequivalence study. And I think one of the misnomers is is that you can show bioequivalence just by showing it's the same material. And that's not the case. Bioequivalence is, is a measurement of two things. It's area under the curve, and it's the maximum serum concentration. And so they have to just do one study. It's usually a pretty small study because it's really a pharmacokinetic study looking at blood levels. So they'll do one study in maybe 25 to 50 people. And what they can show, as long as the maximum serum concentration and the total area under the curve for exposure of the drug is not more than 20% less than the comparison drug and not more than 25% more than the comparison drug. So that it's plus or minus, you know, it's plus 25 or minus 20%. As long as they're within those windows for those two values, they've met the burden of bioequivalence and they can get approved. Right. I guess my point is at risk of sounding like, uh, <laughs> to my listeners, like a Republican capitalist type um, stoolie here, it's like we need to support pharmaceutical companies. We just can't write generic and expect to have all these marvelous medications Develop. Right. I think there's a good push-me-pull you there. It's obviously very inexpensive for the generics to bring a product to market. They don't have to do any of the innovation. They don't have to take on any of the risk. Um, all they have to do is go out and copy a formulation well enough to hit those blood levels. Having that out there, I think, is a little bit of a good thing because it does force the pharmaceutical companies to innovate and to come up with new drugs. If everybody could just sit back and be fat and sassy and, you know, be getting sales from drugs in perpetuity, they wouldn't develop new drugs. So I do think it, it has a good effect to it. And I think that 
to your point, though, clearly the drug industry, you know, to get a drug to market now can take, you know, on average about 15 years and anywhere from $500 million to $800 million. And so that's a huge amount of risk. It takes about 10,000 of those little compounds that get discovered to get all the way through to get one NDA approved. So a lot of drugs you do spend money on up front, and even though you might only be doing it in small increments at the beginning, it adds up. To get one drug approved, it's enormously expensive, and, and there's a lot of drugs that haven't made it in the wake. So yeah, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, when they launch a new product, it is priced accordingly because of all the money that had to go into the R&D. And I know one of the other things that doctors often tell me is, you know, they look around and they say, well, we get a lot of new drugs that don't seem that innovative. They don't seem like that big of an advance. Shouldn't the pharmaceutical companies really only be concentrating on things that are, you know, truly an entirely brand new treatment rather than, say, you know, a second or third introduction of, a, of the same class? And the only argument I would give you there is there are lots of, lots of examples of drugs that might chemically look similar to a drug that's already on the market or be in the same class or have a similar mechanism of action to drugs on the market that have been great improvements. And, you know, the impetus there for pharmaceutical companies to have a a way to make money through those drugs is really important because it provides a lot of the money that goes to then doing the really, really high-risk work of, of looking at new mechanisms and new therapeutic areas. One example I like to talk to people about is the ACE inhibitors. If you think back when Captopril first launched from Bristol-Myers Squibb, if there had never been another ACE inhibitor launched, and I think subsequently there were about eight of them launched, uh, we never probably would have found out that ACE inhibitors work for heart failure because BMS wouldn't have been motivated to go and find that out, and they wouldn't have had Merck breathing down their back with uh, enalapril, and so we wouldn't have had that little war happen, and then we wouldn't have had Ramapril come along and say, well, I've got to show some, and, and, and studied their ACE inhibitor for prevention of heart attacks. So we learned all these great things about ACE inhibitors only because there was an economic incentive there for the pharmaceutical companies to try and extend the life of their drug. Right, and I think it's also important for physicians to look at some of these Me Too things and really make intelligent choices. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah well, absolutely. Well, let me ask a question. Have any good drugs, I'm sure they have, you can give us some examples, <laughs> not made it through the process or almost not made it through the process, like the old uh, Post-it note story? Um, you know, I, I'm sure that there are many instances of drugs that haven't gotten developed for one reason or another that are perfectly good drugs sitting on the shelf somewhere. Uh, my favorite anecdote really comes from my own experience, and I was very fortunate in my career to have been involved in the launch of Lipitor. And I um, worked on Lipitor in the, actually in the marketing department at Park Davis. I was the director of marketing on the launch. And one of the scientists told us all a great story one day. And this gentleman, his name's Roger Newton. He's a wonderful scientist. And he had been uh, with Lipitor, you know, obviously before it even had a name. In fact, it wasn't even called a Torvastatin at that point. It had a number. And they had put the drug, they'd gotten the drug all the way to the point of putting it into the animal studies. And basically their results from the animal studies showed that it was safe, showed that it was effective, but it really didn't look particularly interesting or innovative. It didn't appear to be any better than any of the other statins in the market. And so Roger really had to put himself on the line and literally begged the new products committee at Park Davis and just absolutely begged them to please do one study in man because he and his team were so convinced based on the work that they had done on the mechanism of the drug and looking at, at how the drug uh, was handled in the body, they were very convinced it would be more effective in humans. And so grudgingly, <laughs> 
that study did get funded. And that was the very first study that showed that you could lower LDL cholesterol by 60% with any statin, and it was done with Lipitor. And that was what then suddenly this drug that was sort of everybody was yawning and thinking big deal um, became, you know, just a huge go-to-market compound and all the, you know, resources uh, got thrown behind it to rush it to market as quickly as possible. But Lipitor, you know, very easily based on a different decision that day could still be sitting on a shelf somewhere. And what happened to the guy who begged? (laughs) The guy who begged. You know, Roger actually moved on and started his own company eventually, um, which he which he subsequently sold to Pfizer. So he's still working on new innovative therapies for cholesterol, and particularly looking at drugs that can uh, mimic HDL. Now, I know that's one one big area he's working on. Well, well, you said you you mentioned that you worked in the marketing for Lipitor. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about pharmaceutical company marketing. Sure. Are we doctors really that suggestible? I mean. <laughs> I, are we I, are we looked at as idiots by the marketing departments? I don't think you're looked at as idiots at all, but I will say, and I've been surprised myself because I started out my career as a pharmacist, and so I certainly spent many, many hours in the hospital where I worked talking to doctors and working alongside doctors. And, uh, you know, I certainly have been surprised as a, as a marketer of how doctors can be influenced. And I don't think doctors are influenced by the things that people think influence them. I frankly don't think doctors are influenced by a pen or a pad of paper. However, I do think they're, you know, just as human as anybody else. And if somebody talks to them a, a whole bunch about something and they hear about it in, with a great amount of frequency, it does stick with them. You know, it's just like any other advertising message. And so what's probably become very obvious to you and all of your colleagues out there is that that's what pharmaceutical companies have learned. And so they try and stick as many messages in front of your face as they can on a day-to-day basis. Well, they certainly stick reps in front of us who are different from the old days. These, re- <laughs> these reps are all very, very beautiful young people who sometimes don't know what they're talking about. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the, the original reps that really knew what they were talking about, some of them who are pharmacists who mm-hmm, came out mm-hmm. to us. Yeah, and, you know, I think a lot of the companies do make an effort, and they put a lot of emphasis behind training and, uh, you know, trying to make sure that their representatives are knowledgeable. I think the hard thing for a lot of representatives is they don't get enough time, you know, with a doctor to go through in detail what they've learned about the drug. And, and, you know, the doctors are very busy seeing patients. So it's a tough situation. And I personally, for me, I know one of the best situations is when we can get a physician to, you know, attend a teleconference or go to a, a program and hear an expert or hear other doctors talking about their experience with a drug, you know, what they've seen, and to have the time to really delve into all of the efficacy and safety issues of a drug where they're not harried in between patients. And I think we see, you know, that having a greater influence, frankly, um, on prescribing behavior than anything. Well, you know, we doctors often learn best in Hawaii. Yeah, well, you know, we're not allowed to send you all to Hawaii anymore. That's, I think that's one of the things that's changed a great deal. And I, I'd be surprised if your audience isn't terribly well aware of it. But about five or six years back, the federal government really started to stick their nose into the, pra- the marketing practices of pharmaceutical companies. And under, you know, various um, acts that already are on the books, laws, they actually started going after and prosecuting pharmaceutical companies under anti-kickback legislation. And because the physicians are treating patients who are covered under Medicare or Medicaid, so the government, you know, although a lot of doctors don't like to hear me tell them this, they are a government contractor. And so just like you can't bribe your congressman um, with free lunch, we can't, the the same way we can't do that. Wait, 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 wait. You can't bribe your congressman with free lunch? No, you're not supposed to be able to do that. What are all those lobbyists doing? Well, that's a great question. There's a a whole set of rules for those guys. (laughs) 
but you know they're representing political action committees, etc. But as an individual, you know you can't you can't and and what constitutes you know and I'm being harsh with the term bribe, but really there are federal regulators that would tell you that very simple you know quote unquote gifts to physicians can be construed as a bribe, and so that's why pharmaceutical companies are very limited in what they can do with doctors. Um, you can only provide them with something that ultimately would benefit the patient or the practice. Well, I think bagels, they, they really benefit <laughs> patients. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, food seems to be a safe haven. And so unfortunately, I think we're fattening up the doctors of America with uh, a lot of food in the office. But unfortunately, it's one of the only things that we can do. Even, you know, the thing that used to be hardest for me when I was managing a sales force, because, you know, you have some creative and clever people and they would want to do things like buy tech textbooks or journal subscriptions for doctors. And unfortunately, the dollar value of those just exceeds what the government considers to be a tolerance level for, uh, you know, crossing into the area of too much influence. Well, nothing like a little hypocrisy from the government, right? (laughs) Exactly. Katie, thanks for being my guest today and sharing the process of the birth and development of a pharmaceutical with us. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. Send your email to xm at reachmd.com and we truly thank you for listening.